Thank you, Donald. And I and my family love you all as well, and I greet you as friends and as brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray for you and uh, Columbus, and we're thankful for our co-laboring in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, you can turn in your Bibles, if you have one, to Genesis chapter 28. I believe the last time I preached here, I was in Genesis 4, and I suppose if you invite me to preach every six months or so, you'll get every 20 or 24 chapters in Genesis, and uh, we'll still just get a little snippet of what we're learning in Columbus in the book of Genesis. So it was in Genesis 28 this morning, and my day is framed by Jacob at the gates of heaven. A little context, in Genesis 25, 27 in particular, we have met Jacob, this man who is the promised one of God, but every step of his life uh, thus far more or less has been almost working against the goodness and character of God in his life. And by the end of Genesis 27, he has stolen the blessing by deceit from his brother. Uh, he has a death threat on his head, and that leads us to where we are in Genesis 28. With that in mind, we'll come to God's word. Let's pray before we read. Lord, be with us as we come to this text of Scripture. Teach us and guide us that we might submit to its truth and be led to its glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 28. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Paddan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there, one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away. And he went to Paddan Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Paddan Aram to take a wife from there. And that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Paddan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you. 
wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. This is God's holy word. Well, it's common in opening of a sermon for a preacher to try to give some illustration that will compel you to pay attention to the words that are in the text. But this text for us is so illustrative. There's such a vision for us in the text that what's really necessary for us at the start is just to get this visual in our mind. In our text this morning, this evening, I preached it this morning. In our text this evening, in the place of a stone, there comes a stairway. And the stairway, it forms a gate, the very gates of heaven. Kids, there's so much in this text that you could draw a picture of. A compelling image, Jacob on a stone. He's dreaming. The stairway from heaven comes down, and Jacob wakes up and discovers he's at the gate of heaven itself. And this gate of heaven becomes a center point of the worship of Almighty God. One of the most compelling and gripping images you'll find in all of Scripture. And the goal for us in this text, in a very real sense, is for us to say, oh my, look at that. Look at that. Look at that stairway and and look at that gate that Jacob finds himself in. And as we look at that, as we look at what's presented to Jacob, there's also a a very real look at me. Look, Look at where I am. Look at how I see myself in Jacob. Or maybe a look at us, look at who we are. Look at who we are, the people of God. You see, up to this point, Jacob's life has been defined by various encounters with all kinds of people. Esau came to him to manipulate him for that bowl of stew, and then in his anger to kill him. Isaac came to Jacob with the purpose actually to ignore him. Rebekah came to Jacob with the purpose again to manipulate him. But now in this text, God comes to Jacob to change him. If you look at Jacob's life thus far from his own perspective, whether it's his dealings with Esau, Isaac, and Rebekah, it's deceit, deceit, deceit. This is to find his life thus far, but now there's a new encounter, an encounter with God himself. Here's my prayer for us tonight, that we all together would encounter God in this text, that we would meet the God of the stairway, that we would ourselves find ourselves at the gate of heaven, that we would experience this, 
uh, that we might be led as we would leave here this evening to ourselves say, surely the Lord is in this place. How awesome is it to be in the presence of God. Well, note as I begin that there is very much an individual experience that's pointed to here. You uh, needing to meet the God of the stairway, but there's also a corporate reality. Jacob is the one who will become Israel, and Israel is the people of God, the house of God. And in the New Testament, the house of God, language that's even in this text, is the church of God in Christ. What Jacob experiences here defines and shapes what the church of God must become and perhaps already is. So we want to read with an eye to you and an eye to us together. And in this encounter with God, there are three parts, the three visuals I've already given you, the stone, the ladder, and the gates. The stone, the ladder, and the gate. First, the stone, verses 1 to 11. To introduce this idea of the stone, let me ask a question like this. Have you ever felt alone, on the run? All the sources of stability in your life are gone. Uh, The possibility of giving up is very clear all around you. And your own failures loom over you as the cause of at least half of the troubles you're in. That's verses 1 to 11. And we define it as the stone, not because the stone is there in all of these verses, but it's the defining image on which these verses of Jacob's trouble land. Is it too much of a pun to say that the stone represents rock bottom for Jacob, uh, to which all of verses 1 to 11 lead, or that the stone is where Jacob gets when his life is found to be totally on the rocks? We use that kind of expression. Everything from verse 1 to 11 leads to Jacob's desperate night sleeping on the stone. You could almost say that from conception up to this moment. You may remember reading of Jacob being at war in the womb. All of life for Jacob has been trending toward the lonely night by the stone with the sun setting behind him. There has been in Jacob's life this tragedy. Divine blessing rests on his head but every actual experience of his life seems to run in the opposite direction. And we see that noting a few things in verses 1 to 11, verses 1 to 5. You might read that at first glance as something like a tender word of a father to a son. And there is some tenderness perhaps there, but those verses should be read just as much as sad and desperate words from a father who may never see his son again. You may picture it something like a family in a country that's under a sudden invasion and there's going to be a need for many from the country to escape and become refugees. And the, the, a father, a blind and aged father, hears the incoming helicopters of enemy forces from a distance and he knows he's got just a minute or so before he has to tell his son to run out the back door that he might hope to be safe. Here's Isaac. Run. Run, Jacob. Go to Pat and Aram. Get out of here. Find a wife. Go get married. I don't know if I'm ever going to see you again. God be with you. Make haste. Run. Esau might be after you. Be gone. And in a sudden moment, Jacob's a refugee. He's a refugee. All in a moment. Verse 6 to 9 then. The refugee goes out. 
And we meet his brother, who's choosing a different road, giving up on the covenant, marrying those not of the promised line. It's a stark contrast. It's the way of life Jacob could choose. Why go to Pat and Aram? You can find a wife with much less difficulty than that, just if you give up the covenants. And then in verse 10, we meet Jacob, and he's there in Haran, alone. Curiously, his grandfather Abraham had journeyed to Haran something like 200 years ago. You can read that in Genesis 11 and 12. Jacob's alone here. How much progress visibly has been made in the advance of the covenant people of God 200 years later. Jacob's doing the same thing Abraham did, wandering alone, not sure where he's going. Here he has nowhere to lay, a, lay his head. He grabs a stone and he falls asleep. And the narrator gives us, Moses, he gives us a sense of the gloom of the passage by drawing into the idea that the sun has already set. The light shining in Genesis is the announcement of the life of God. God said, let there be lights. And you get the sense as you move in verse 11, that the light is going out on Jacob's life. The power has gone out on Jacob's experience of joy and hope, and all he has is this one rock. His past, defined by conflict. His present, defined by loneliness. His future, well, who knows what his future is defined by? Where is it headed? And breathing through all of this is Jacob's own failures. In a very real sense, this is a mess of his own making. He is, after all, the guy who deceitfully negotiated for the birthright and then lied and went before his father and aroused the anger of his brother. He's not able to sit there and say, you know what, this wasn't my fault. Alone, on the run, your life source of stability gone, the possibility of giving up all around you, your own failures looming over you as the cause of at least half the problems that got you here. That's verse 1 to 11. And it lands with that uncomfortable night. Can you imagine sleeping with your head on a stone? Have you ever been there? Imagine if you hired an artist, a painter, to uh, do a, a drawing of you, and you say, I'm not just interested in exact self-portraits, but I want you to uh, work and show me as I really am. Maybe some of you have done something like this at the State Fair, and the caricature artist you know, expands your futures to get a sense of your real personality and what you're really like. And so you draw the, the painter in, or maybe as a church body you would do this, and you say, we want to get a picture of us like we really are like, and you're free to add some artistic license to get the real sense of who we are, and the painter says, well, I'll need to spend several weeks with you to get a sense of your life, to get a sense of the daily rhythms of where you are and what you like, or what you all are like. Well, what would your reaction be if at the end of that time the painter came up to you and had the painting all wrapped and uh, you opened it up and there you were painted with your head on a stone and the lights going out on your life. 
Some of you would look at that and say, he nailed it. That's exactly what I'm like. Uh, You see yourself on Jacob's stone pretty clearly. You're actually decently desperate as you walked in tonight, sir. You see the church of Jesus Christ there. You see the church in all its lack of glory and all its struggle, and you think that's about the only way you could paint us, lonely with our head on a stone and the lights seeming to go out on us. Sometimes young people get there. They get to a point in their life. They're wandering and they're wondering. They're coming of age and they have this sense of, where am I headed? Where am I going? What can I trust for my life ahead of me? Now, others of you, though, if a painter dared depict you or your life like lonely Jacob on a stone, you would hide the painting. It would go on a back closet with all the school photos from your childhood that you want no one to see. It's too embarrassing for you. You say, there is no way that I will ever be pictured in such a, a sad and even pathetic position. And maybe you come in here tonight and you, you just refuse that you could ever identify with Jacob because Jacob, you think, well, I've got a decent enough job. There are a few people around me that like me or I'm trying to get to like me. There's enough people, you know, in the church to keep this thing going. So, so we're okay. Everything's fine. Don't, don't draw me into verse 11 of this text. And the reality is if that's the way you see things in life, well, Genesis 25, Genesis 27, go reread. Maybe you're still with Jacob there. Still trusting that by your own hand and your own strength and your own manipulation, you can get things to go your way. Here's the reality. Jacob is Israel. Jacob is the representative of the church, the church in desperate need. God is our artist. God is our painter, and we must let him paint his picture. Uh, We ought to be seeing ourselves in this text, laying on the stone, and the sun's going down. We need an answer. And the gratefulness we have in this text as we see ourselves here is that's Our great artist in this text has actually drawn, you could say, three pictures. Three pictures that should grip your mind. And there is this one of Jacob on the stone, but there is a second as well. The stairway. At the point of the stone, the stairway arrives, verses 12 to 15. Jacob has a dream in the night. God comes to Jacob, and he gives Jacob a whole new view of reality. I wonder if you can remember a time where you'd say, after I saw that, or after I experienced that, my view of the world changed in a way I could never go back to what it was before. Uh, I remember in my experience, I was at TFY, our church's youth conference, and I was actually flying back from uh, TFY, a three-week conference in Pittsburgh. And it was the first time in my life First time in my life I'd ever flown in a plane in the rain and then come above the clouds and seen the sun shining the orange onto the clouds and seeing the blue above the clouds all around me. I'd never seen anything like that in my life. I remember transfixed, just staring out the window. I was flying with no one that I knew and just sitting by myself looking and watching and the world was more beautiful than I had ever thought it could possibly be. And I think I can honestly say that that one experience gave me almost a whole new view of the world itself. And something maybe analogous to that, but but far greater than that. That's what's happening to Jacob in verses 12 and 13. 
Note how verses 12 and 13 use the word behold actually three times. And behold, verse 12, there's a ladder. Behold, verse 12, the angels of God. Behold, verse 13, the Lord stands above the ladder. Uh, The word behold and sort of colloquial expression could mean something like, oh, wow, look. Here's Jacob. He's on the stone. Oh, wow, look. Look at that. There's a ladder set up on the earth. And would you look at that? The angels of God are on it. And would you look at that? The Lord Himself stands above it. This text is calling you to say, oh, wow. Look at what God is. Oh, wow. Look at this. And so your application, if you're wondering, what's your application as you're going to walk away this evening? In a very real sense, is to walk away and Just join with Moses and say, behold, or, oh, wow, look. Look at who God is. And the key for you in saying, oh, wow, is not going to be to go to sleep tonight and tell your parents or tell your wife or your husband or your best friend what you dreamed about. Most of them probably don't want to hear it. And there are Christians that actually think that way, though, that to get the oh, wow of life, we need some sort of extra revelation from the outside to give us that experience. But Jesus makes it very clear to us when we read in the Gospels where this, oh, wow, should be turned. In John chapter 1, Jesus comes to deceitful Israel. He shows up to people who are very much like Jacob. They don't even want to receive him. And he's interfacing with the disciples. And in John 151, interacting with Nathaniel, he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus comes to people who are living their life on the stone. They're sleeping on the stone and there's no sunlight. The sun has seemed to gone down, have gone down. The people walking in darkness see a great light. What is it? It's angels ascending and descending, pictorially speaking, on a ladder? No. On Jesus Christ. Jesus is saying, I am the ladder. And so as Christians, we can't help but as we read this, to be learning where are we already turning. We're learning to behold the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We're summoned to say, tomorrow morning over breakfast, oh, wow. Look at Jesus. Look at what Jesus has done. Look at who he is. And so we're already acknowledging that we have Jesus full in our mind as we come to this text. We just want to make some observations about what this, what's going on with this stairway. Just look in verses 12 and following, and something like four observations briefly about this stairway. We might observe, first of all, for example, that the ladder is a top-down ladder. It comes from the top down. The literal reading of verse 12 is that the ladder is placed down toward the earth. In my time serving here at Second RP, we had several work days, and occasionally the big ladders had to get put out to be put up on the houses or on this building to work in the gutters or work on the roof. And my memory of those work days is that generally the ladder gets put on the ground, and then we try to set it up and get it up on the roof. And there never was exactly a time where someone carried a ladder up onto the roof 
and from the top of the roof, picked the ladder up and dropped it onto the ground and hoped that it would land properly. That's not how we do things. But the reality is that's exactly what's happening here. In our world and in our life, we get very used to thinking of the ladder that we have to climb to get our way to God as being a bottom-up ladder. We've got to make our way to the top. What does Jacob need? What do you need tonight? So many in the world would say, set the ladder up on the ground and get climbing. You don't have much time left, so get climbing and see how high you can get and make your way to God. We could say every other world religion makes this suggestion. And this creates something like two outcomes. One outcome is you drive yourself crazy trying to get to the eternal. Uh, Another outcome is that you give up because you've discovered that's impossible. You can't make your way up. But what we discover here is that God brings a top-down ladder. The song would talk to you about a stairway to heaven. This is the stairway from heaven. This is the stairway from heaven. This is God coming down to man. This is the visit from above. This is why Jesus in John 1 would speak of himself as the ladder, because what is the gospel? What is the opening chapter of the gospel? It's the top-down move of God in heaven. It's the Word become flesh and dwells among us. It's that God comes down to the one sleeping on the stone. And so our first observation is just that we have a top-down ladder. A second observation about the ladder is that it is really the Lord's ladder. We find these places where our society echoes the language of this text, but maybe just hasn't read it very closely. Don't call it the stairway to heaven before you call it the stairway from heaven. Our society wants to call this Jacob's ladder. That's a term that people use. This is not Jacob's ladder. This is the Lord's ladder. Everything in this text moves towards the climax of verse 13, that God himself is above the ladder, or perhaps beside Jacob as he comes down the ladder, this is the presence of God that's coming to us. You see, the ladder uh, communicates not simply that God has set a ladder up in heaven down to earth that sort of gives a top-down access point to God. The ladder communicates that God himself is bringing his presence. What does Jacob need? He needs the presence of God. The Christian recognizes that we have not just seen a ladder coming down. Uh, We say what the disciples or the women said after Jesus was risen from the dead. We have seen the Lord. We've seen the Lord himself. So so that's an observation we want to make about this ladder, that it's the Lord. So it's top down. It's the Lord. A third observation is that this ladder is actually of the Garden of Eden. Now that may be a bit harder to see, but just work a moment on this. Remember Genesis 1.1, God created the heavens and the earth. In the Garden of Eden, you have this perfect unity between the, the realm of God's heavenly presence and the realm of the earthly life of image bearers and people that walk around around stones and all these kind of things. And God dwells there. There's a perfect heaven and earth communion. And the message of Genesis is that sin shatters this thing. Sin shatters the heaven and earth communion of the world and the sign of brokenness of that. In Genesis 3, the angels block the way. The angels say, no more of this perfect heaven-earth communion. But what is this ladder? It's the union of heaven and earth. 
It's the bridge. It's the mediation. It's the presence of God with man. And we see angels dwelling in and on it. We have a sense that the worship, the wonder, the beauty of Eden is being restored, but it's not in a beautiful garden. It's on a lonely man with all his sin and his life there by a stone, and there is Eden itself. And that gives us a, a fourth observation about the ladder, and that it is that it is a, this is a ladder of grace. This is a stairway of grace. What do angels bring? after the sin in the Garden of Eden. Angels bring judgments. Angels all over Genesis are agents of the judgment of God, the blocking from the presence of God. But what are the angels doing here? They're inviting Jacob to the presence of God. Jacob, through these angels, is seeing the presence and the glory of God himself. The angels are welcoming and inviting who? The deceiver, the deceiver who's devoted his life to anything but the glory of the presence of God in the middle of the nights, on the loneliest night of his life, sees the angels in a sense welcoming him back to the glory of Eden itself. This is grace. Do not read this as well. God kind of has to do this for people, you know? They, they deserve it no matter how bad they are. No, no. This is Grace. This is the grace of God. And, and in verse 13 to 15, the Lord makes it clear. You, you get the full blessing over and over again in Genesis. Abraham or Isaac, or even go back to Noah, or you see it all the way back in Adam. There are these promises of the presence of God, of the land, of offspring, of, of worldwide blessing. And you, you read Genesis and you think, that, that promise is probably going to get canceled uh, the next time Jacob deceives somebody, right? Uh, God's not going to stick with that depth of promise. Jacob's about the biggest bum we've found. So, so it's probably not going to show up anymore after about Genesis 27. The whole thing is there. The whole thing is there. God's promise and blessing to sinful man. So, so, so what is this ladder? What's the promise to us in the church? Here you go. You're a deceiver. You, you, you've drifted away from the Lord. Maybe you're a man or a woman tonight on the run and you've got nowhere to go. You really don't know where this thing is headed. Nowhere to sleep save for a, a rock. Hear this, the Lord of glory comes from the top down to, to show himself and bring us Eden by grace. That's the gospel. Most directly, that's Jesus. That's what Jesus is to the Christian. That's what Jesus is to the church. So, so when we're on the rocks, when the lights seem to have gone out, when, when the gap between heaven and earth seems about a million miles high, uh, when my sin seems to have ruined everything, when Esau, in this case you'd say Esau's got more going for him in terms of wives and all of that. He's got, when Esau's got more going for him than you do, when the world seems to have a more attractive life than you, when we wonder if the church is actually going to make it in its lonely pilgrimage, there's a ladder. Did you know that? There's a stairway from heaven. There's Jesus Christ come to us, and you are called 
to say, oh, wow, at Jesus today. You are called to behold the stairway. And you need this call in your life. Some of you have maybe never looked at the stairway. Some of you have looked at it very short time in your life. Some of you have looked at it for decades. You need this reality that on your stone tonight, it is true that you do not yet have a high and wondrous enough view of Jesus. There is more to see in the stairway from heaven. There's a summons to gaze and immerse yourself in Jesus Christ. So immerse yourself in Jesus Christ. Lord, show me the glory of Jesus all over again. The stairway. And to press into what that means for us, we we need to see what happens to Jacob in the morning. He's there on the stone, and then we get the second picture the artist paints for us. It's not just a picture, it's real, but you know what I mean. The stairway. And then we get third, Jacob's reaction, and that centers on the picture of a gate. A gate, verses 16 through 22. Jacob wakes up, and he's in awe. Surely the Lord is in this place. I didn't know it. How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gates of heaven. Jacob discovers that this simple place that he is is the doorway to heaven itself. God has come and brought the holy onto this ordinary ground on which he is. The most unlikely candidates, the most unlikely place. And what we need to be clear on is that the gate of heaven is not the stairway. The gate of heaven is what the stairway forms or reveals when it touched ground. Think about how in our society, when explorers conquer some great challenge, say Mount Everest, or you could think of the moon, or uh, you know, all kinds of places that explorers would land. And, and what do they do when they get there? They, they place a flag or some memento on the top. And the message of that flag would be something like, man has conquered, or I have conquered. I have conquered this beautiful and majestic place, so the next traveler that comes there knows that such and such individual has made it to the top of this high and glorious mountain. This stairway did the opposite. This stairway was God coming to the non-beautiful, the non-majestic, This is God placing his flag in the most unremarkable, or you might even say most remarkably sinful place in the world and saying, I put my flag right there. That's where I want it. That's my house. I will dwell there. And Jacob sees that and says, oh my, I'm in the house of God, the gate of heaven. I, me, this place, this, the house of God, Can you believe it? How awesome is this place? Now, we know that the physical location now, well, the physical location then is just a type or a sign or an anticipation of what will happen in the church. Individually in us, we are temples of the Holy Spirit. The church is the house of God. What is the church but the gate of heaven? What what is our experience of walking in Christ, but being his house, we the most unlikely place. And this needs to shape us as it shakes 
shapes Jacob. Jacob in this text seems to learn suddenly who he is, what he's got to do, and where he needs to go. And we in this text need to be shaped into who we are, what we need to do, and where we have to go. Who we are. Who we are. We are those, by grace, on whom God has built His house, in whom God has given His presence. Yes, the picture is right. The artist is accurate. I'm the man on the stone, the woman on the stone. But I am the man on the stone, the woman on the stone, to whom the gate of heaven has been brought. We are the church that finds itself, bumbling though we are, at the gate of heaven. The next time you pound your fist on the steering wheel or do whatever it is you do and you feel like saying, I can't believe I'm like this or I can't believe we are like this, go back to verse 17 and say, but but God is making his house here. This is the gate of heaven itself. I love the words of Chad Bird here commenting on this. He says this, God's workplaces have always shared one thing in common. They're messy. Jacob himself was the mess at Bethel, a lying, thieving, heel-grabbing runaway whom God nevertheless loved. And churches today, I don't need to tell you what a mess they can be. Just read the news. God says to us, my home is your home. And we proceed to drag our messes inside. There is blood on the floor from those of us who crawl here after a week of battling addiction, grief, shame, failure. There are stains on the carpet from when we lost our lunch because we're sick, sick of anger or just sick of life. In God's house are tiny fragments of broken hearts and tear-drenched pews and the mess of sinners with our crumbling dreams. Christ shows up week after week to do His thing to give us himself. This is the gate of heaven. Yes, actually this church is at the gate of heaven. This is who we are. And so what do we do? We respond and worship. How awesome is this place, Jacob says. He worships. He takes the stone and he makes it a pillar. You just got to notice something about this pillar. The stone, the very stone becomes the pillar. The ordinary becomes extraordinary. The pillar actually has a top-down feature to it. The oil lands on the top and comes down to the bottom. The language of verse 19 where he sets up the pillar is the same language of verse 12 with the ladder being set up on the earth. What is the pillar? It's a replica of the stairway. It's the announcements For time to come, God showed up here. And what is the worship of God? But the rhythmic weekly announcement that God has shown up here. You see, worship is not this separate and distant thing from the gospel. What is the gospel? God shows up on the stairway to sinners by grace to lead us to his glory. What do we do in worship? We announce to ourselves, to the world, And we declare it back to God that God shows up to weary sinners and brings us His glory. The pillar is set up. Why do we talk about worship as central in the life of the church? Why do we prepare our hearts for worship? Why are we to drive to church with an eagerness in us, praying and singing as we're on the way? Why? 
because surely God is in this place. How awesome is this? Let us worship. Let's worship. In my own life, these few verses transform my entire view of the worship of God. Worship not as some tiny separate thing. We worship because we're announcing the gospel. The pillar is set up. We're telling the world one more time about that stairway that came down. It's what we do. It's what we do. And then where do we go? Jacob commits to going on the journey. And I know that there are some that read this and say, well, Jacob's doing the old deceiver thing again. He's negotiating with God, and he's saying, well, if you want to be with me, God, I I suppose I'll respond in kind. But it, it seems much more that Jacob is just quoting the promises of God back to God. God says, I'll be with you, I'll be there on your journey, and Jacob says, okay, I make my vow. I'm committed to you. Now, what's very relevant as we close is that Jacob's life path doesn't really change in terms of where his GPS says he's going. He's going to Pat and Aram to find a wife, just like Isaac said he should do. But everything's changed for Jacob. Some of you, you may need to change the life direction tonight. You really might. You might be going in totally the wrong direction, and Esau more or less is where you're headed, uh, and you need it to fall under the stairway and, and believe in Jesus Christ. Others of you, it's maybe not going to look that different. You're going to file into work with the same boss tomorrow, that sort of thing. But there needs to be this renewed commitment that says, you know, I'm doing this in the presence of God. I'm a refugee, I'm on the run, and God is with me. God is with me. I'm not done. I'm carrying on because the stairway has come down and His presence is with us. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the presence of God. Thank You for the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Would, we live, would You guide us by Your Spirit to live our lives in view of that holy presence? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.